Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran, a ministry of Worship Generation Church in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. So tonight we're going to be picking up our text in 1 Chronicles chapter 9. And as we come to 1 Chronicles chapter 9, of course we've seen all these names. We call it Ancestry.com, biblical style. And we, we were getting all these names because the Jews who are in captivity in Babylon have returned. It's about 530-ish B.C. They've come back from the seven years of captivity. And they're re-inhabiting their land, and they're reconnecting with their identity, their heritage, the land that was theirs, these sorts of things. And so that's our background to the book as we go forward in First Chronicles. We've cleared a lot of the names. Two weeks ago, uh, verse by verse, we had the 81-verse chapter there with all the Levites and their legacy. And tonight we're refocused on the Levites again but in a, in a little bit of a different capacity than we did last week. So we're going to pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at the gatekeepers and the singers and their roles and their ministries, their responsibilities, and what we can learn from them for our lives personally in the name of Jesus and in humanity in general, but really specifically in the name of Jesus for what it means for us going forward as the church of Jesus Christ. So verse 17 With that theme and background, we read this. And the gatekeepers of the Levites were Shalom, Akab, Talman, Ahiman, and their brethren. Shalom was the chief. Until then, they had been gatekeepers for the camps of the children of Levi at the king's gate on the east. Shalom, the son of Kor, the son of Ebisoth, the son of Korah, and his brethren were his father's house, the Korahites, were in charge of the work of the service, Gatekeepers of the tabernacle. That's the central place of worship, of course, for the people of God. Their fathers had been keepers of the entrance to the camp of the Lord. And Phineas, the son of Eliezer, Phineas, of course, became a high priest as a descendant of Aaron, had been the officer over them in time past, and the Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of Meshelamiah, was keeper of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. All those chosen as gatekeepers were 212. They are recorded by their genealogies in their villages. David and Samuel, the prophet, the seer, had appointed them in this trusted office. So this is now a reference to about 400 years prior, because David is about 1000 B.C. Verse 23. So they and their children were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, the house of the tabernacle, by assignment. The gatekeepers were assigned to the four directions, the east, the west, the north, and south. And their brethren in their villages had come with them from time to time for seven days. For in this trusted office were four chief gatekeepers. They were Levites, and they had charge over the chambers and the treasuries of the house of God. And they lodged all around the house of God because they had the responsibility, and they were in charge of opening opening it every morning. Now, some were in charge of the serving vessels, the implements of the sanctuary, and over the fine flour and the wine and the oil and the incense and the spices— and some of the sons of the priests made ointment of the spices. Mathathiah, the Levites, the firstborn of Shalom the Korahite, had the trusted office over the things that were baked in the pans. 
And some of their brethren of the sons of the Kohathites were in charge of preparing the showbread for every Sabbath. These are the singers, heads of the father's houses of the Levites, who lodged in the chambers and were free from other duties, for they were employed in that work day and night. These heads of the father's houses of the Levites were heads throughout their generations. They dwelt at Jerusalem. So this is recounting all this wonderful service and order that King David and Samuel had set up back in the day. Of course, David brought the Ark of the Covenant there to Jerusalem, and the tabernacle was there, and they made that the central place of worship. Then his son Solomon built the temple, and that strengthened that central place of worship. So from that time forward, all the Israelites, whether they lived in the north by modern Lebanon or in the south in modern Gaza Strip, they would come three times a year for the Jewish feast, and the temple was the central place of worship where all those things took place. That God described for them back in the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, of what they were to do. And so we know, remember, like he had the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the civil law for how they treated one another's neighbors, and he had the religious law for how he was worshipped and how he was approached. And the Levites were the, the one tribe of the 12 tribes in charge of serving the Lord. If you recall, the Lord said, the Levites, belong, whatever opens the womb, the firstborn is mine. And in place of the firstborn of every household being mine, the Levites will be set apart for me to serve me. And that's the way it was, the Levites. So that's the history of the Levites. And so if you're from any other tribe, you can say, hey, I want to be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. I want to sing. I want to do these things. It just wasn't for you. That's just the way it was. And that's, that's fine because God has design and purpose for every one of us. And so for them, this is the way it was. Having taught this text Tuesday night and been looking at it for over a week and really focused on it since Tuesday night, I went back to Genesis chapter 2 because this is what their responsibilities were. I mean, this was the responsibilities of the Levites. We have responsibilities, so it got me thinking about just in general humanity and our responsibilities. And, of course, it took me back to Genesis chapter 2 because in the beginning when God made man and woman, he made them in his image, and he put them in the garden, and he gave them the task and the responsibility of tending the garden. And there in that garden he gave them the tree of life, where they had fellowship with him, and the choice to not have fellowship with him with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, in the context of this text with responsibilities, we could say he gave them the choice to obey him and be fruitful in their work or to not obey him and be unfruitful in their work. Like all things, it just works that way. If you make good decisions, the compound effect of good decisions will bring blessings on your life. If you make bad decisions, the compound effect of bad decisions will make bad impact on your life. And so there we find that Adam and Eve had purpose in their life, fellowship with God, and choice with God for the very best, or the choice to not go for the very best, to give their best and receive his best, or to reject it, do their own thing, and find out what death really looks like, which we all know as the descendants of Adam and Eve, we know what that looks like. We talked about this just over the last few weeks as well. But when we come to Christ, we're not just saved from our sins— we're saved for a purpose. Christ died for our sins to save us from the wrath of God and to bring us into saving favor and to take us from death to life. We pass from condemnation to justification, right? Death to life, hell to heaven, confusion to peace. All those things happen. But as my son Luke said when I was in Florida a month and a half ago, so many people come up short because they just want to be saved from their sins but not walk in what their calling is. 
So we're saved from this to fulfill that. And so really when we give our life to Christ, we're now entering into that workmanship. And that's why Ephesians 2 says that we're not saved by works of our own efforts. No one's going to save themselves. But we're saved by Christ through grace and faith to a work, the workmanship or the responsibility of the things God has intended for our life. We're restored. As Adam lost something and through Christ it's restored in the second Adam, so too our fullest purpose in existence doesn't even begin in life until we give our life to Christ. We become a new creation. We're born anew. And we pass from death in the first Adam to life and purpose in the second Adam. And Genesis 2, before their sin, reminds us. We often think of work as being punishment for sin because Genesis 3 says, hey, thorns and thistles, the ground's going to bear for you, Adam, and all your descendants. But we need to understand they had purpose and meaning and a job and responsibility before the fall. And certainly when we get to eternity, if, if the parables of Jesus teach us anything, we all have purpose and responsibility in the next dimension based upon how we're faithful with the stewardship of our lives in this one. This is all a test, all preparing us for what the glory is to come. And everything God wants to do in our life is to make us useful for what's to come in the next dimension. And that's important to keep in mind at this study with this text tonight. So again, we come back to this idea of stewardship and responsibility. The word responsibility in the New King James pops out in verse 27. We'll build our topic and application around that because we all have responsibilities. Whether we want to or not, we have responsibilities as citizens of a country, pay taxes, or receive the benefits of others who do because we can't function in society, things like that, or we're not able. But we all have responsibilities. You get in a car, you got to stop at the stop site. Stop sign, you got to stop at the red light. Like, we all have responsibilities functioning in society. Whether we like it or not, we have responsibilities. And so often when people become homeless, they become homeless because they don't want to have responsibilities. But even so, my sister being homeless for five years, I learned a lot about it. She has shared so much from that experience with me. I'll never forget when she had her grocery cart. And she's saying, life is so hard trying to live life and make things happen. I go, well, this looks harder. This grocery cart, this life you're living behind the Dempsey dumpster at the dollar store, this looks harder to me than getting up and going to work on time and doing a job. And my sister was a great employee before bad men and alcohol. Now, they had responsibilities. We have responsibilities. And even in the responsibilities, certain words jump out at us. Verse, if you start at verse 22, you, you get these phrases like, um, they were chosen, they were appointed, they were in charge, their children did it with them. They had assignment, they were assigned. They were, they commuted. At times they had to commute to work, it says. They were, uh, they were trusted with this thing. They, they were in charge of the, the assets and the money. The monetary wealth and the asset wealth. And they had this responsibility So this phrase, responsibility, put that over your life right now. I want you to think about your life right now, your responsibilities. Your responsibilities, because you and I are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we talk about giving an account for the Lord, and we will before the Lord, we're going to give an account for whether we're faithful or not with the stewardships entrusted to us. And stewardships, and all those parables Jesus taught on this, is just another way of saying responsibilities. It's just that stewardship is responsibilities. That's what it is. So with that in mind, 
we want to look at three things from this text tonight. The value of time, the value of numbers, and the value of singular focus in serving the Lord and being fruitful for the Lord and glorifying the Lord. The first one, the value of time. And we're going to look at Jesus, the apostles, in our lives as we do so. The value of time. Of all the greatest gifts we have, time is, of course, the greatest gift. Being in ministry for 35 years, I've done so many memorials and funerals for people of all walks of life. At the end of their journey, early on, children, infants, teenagers, and and the grief and the heartache that goes with all of it. And we realize that we all get different allotments of time. And time is very special. And in these responsibilities that these Levites had, we see that every day, every day, todos dias, every day, they had to get up at a certain time and open the house of the Lord, open the gates to the house of the Lord. Every day. It's like Norm's restaurant, right? 24-7. Every day, somebody has to be there to greet you, seat you, and serve you your food. Every day. Every day, they lived nearby, so it was a short commute. Some of them lived farther away, so they'd come and stay for a week and do a a week commute at work. And they did it every day. Every day, they had this responsibility. And you and I have responsibilities every day, by the way. And we know from the Jewish day, how they structured the Jewish day, that the Jewish day started at 6 a.m. So when it's the ninth hour and Peter's going to prayer, it's 3 in the afternoon. When Peter's on the rooftop praying at Simon the Tanner's house, it's, it's noon. It's lunchtime. 6 a.m. is when the Jewish day began. So it's reasonable to uh, consider that these guys would get up 5.30, whatever, do their deal, and off they went to work, and the gates would open at 6 a.m. because that's when the Jewish day began for the Jewish people. So they had this responsibility that... D- revolved around time. You couldn't just say, you know, I'm just going to go to work at 6.05 today. Honey, Mahathaliel says he's going to work at 6.15. I'm going to go at 6.20. No, you serve the Lord and you open those gates at the same time every day faithfully. And by the way, when you do the same thing, the right thing faithfully, we call that the compound effect. Small choices, the right choices, Consistently made over time produce great results. This is the compound effect. God set up his universe and the children of Israel for a compound effect. Because they were required to do something every day at the same time. They needed to do it. Now, they would have a day off. Of course, God gave them the Sabbath day. So I'm sure in the rotation, every Levite worked six, one off, six, one off, that kind of a thing. For sure, he built that in for them. But it, it had to happen. And so that, that responsibility and the consistency of it, and we know in the workplace, when you're a boss and you have faithful employees that show up on time every day and they do their job properly every day, there's a consistency and there's a blessing to you and to them upon their life. And we'll go further into that shortly. So in God's universe, with the, particularly in the Old Testament with the Jewish calendar, he really set them up to be successful, to be structured and orderly with responsibilities and consistency throughout their year. Think about it. He gave them the Jewish calendar. Every year, three times a year, the entire family would go to Jerusalem and worship the Lord. He required all the men, men, you can do coffee and donuts by choice with us next Saturday, or in the Old Testament, you could show up three times a year wherever you lived. You come down from Beirut, you know, 
Damascus, wherever. You're coming to Jerusalem three times a year to stand before the Lord and know you're accountable on the day of the Lord and for the things you're doing between now and then. That's how it worked. He would not let men slack off and become lazy and slothful. He held them accountable three times a year to stand before him and be reminded of who he is, what he's done, what he's going to do, and what he has for them. The, 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 the feast, the three main feasts. Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles. And the last one, he said, camp out for a week just so you know you're a pilgrim too. He wanted them, he, they had nice homes. And he said, I know you got nice homes up there on the Sea of Galilee, but I want you to live in a tent for a week. Just remind yourself, like Abraham, who looked for the city which had foundation, his builder and maker is God, that your real home is with me in heaven. So he had all those feasts. He had the year of Jubilee. No matter, no matter how much financial trouble you got yourself in, God was gracious, and in the 50th year, he'd bail you out. Isn't that nice? I mean, he'd bail you out every 50 years. And if you took advantage of people with, with finances and, and you, you know, you... You were, you were not a good capitalist, but a naughty capitalist. Uh, you know what? God made you give it half of it back anyways in the year of Jubilee. Like, he, he had boundaries and safety nets and checks and balances where he held everyone accountable. So even the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, the seventh year of the land of the Sabbath, he gave the land a rest every seven years. He gave you a day off every seven days. See, a lot of cultures don't take a day off, particularly in the Asiatic cultures. They don't take a day off. He made sure they took one and seven off because he rested on the seventh day. Then one in seven years, the land rested. He had given enough on the sixth year to get him to the eighth year. And in the 50th year, hey, just forgive him because eternity is about not being filled with malice, but being forgiven and just going forward to glory. David understood the value of the day when he said the days were fashioned for us when as yet none of them were lived out in Psalm 139. He understood that the days each day Moses in Psalm 90 said, Lord, our days will before us before your glory and your wrath. Therefore, give us a heart of wisdom and teach us to number our days. What are the days of man? 70 years by measure of strength, 80. Moses lived 120. Jacob summarizing his days, he said, few and evil have been all my days. Because life is generally two steps forward and one step back. Life is usually trial, trial, crisis, trial, trial, crisis, trial, trial, crisis. So you need you and Jesus, faith, faith, overcome, faith, faith, overcome, faith, faith, overcome, faith, faith, overcome, and we overcame by our faith. That's how life works. There's no life without trials and tribulations and crisis. I'm sure you older people figured that out. Your young people just think it's going against you when you're trying to get into the right college that you want to go to. Life is trials, trials, crisis. Trials, trials, crisis. And we're more than conquerors through Christ who brings us through them. So time is a reality. Jesus, when he came on the scene and presented himself to the nation of Israel, he said, the time is fulfilled. Repent and believe. The very first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe. He introduced time as he presented himself in time, that it was fulfilled for them, they needed to repent and to believe. Or as he said later on, my time is not yet, but your time is always today. Remember when he said that? He said, it's not yet my time to go to the cross. That was implying. It's not yet my time, but it's always your time. Because we read later on that today is the day of salvation. It's always today with the Lord. The value of this day. And what are we guaranteed? We can't change yesterday. We're not promised tomorrow. We have today. And the greatest value we have is the asset and the wealth of today, this time, this very moment.
This day is our greatest gift. And as you get older, you younger people, you realize that those days are slipping away from you. And you can't go back and redo the days you wasted. You can only focus on the days in front of you. You get really discouraged for the days you wasted. That's why Paul the Apostle told us to redeem the time for the days are evil. And he told us in Colossians, that's Ephesians. He said, redeem the time so you may know how to answer those who are not believers with the truth. So not only are we called as a church to redeem time in our life, but we're to redeem time to the benefit of those who don't know the Lord, according to Colossians chapter 4. See, we need to sense and value, we need to sense the value of time. We need to be alert to time and aware of our time at all times. We don't want to waste one day. We want to be intentional with our time, Faithful and consistent with our time. Because body of Christ, it is without a doubt the single greatest asset we have. And I believe when I stand before the Lord, before I give an account for my marriage, my children, and all I've ever been called to do, I'm first going to give an account for how I use the time he gave me. In writing my book, I retold the story of Christopher O'Rourke on the plane. Some of you have seen it in different movies. The story has been told many times. But the best surfer in California before me was Chris O'Rourke. He was two years older than me. He was my hero. And he became my rival. And right when I became the best surfer in California, beat the world champion in my first pro contest, won my first pro contest, made the finals of the Pipe Masters with Jerry Lopez on ABC World Sports at 17. Before that happened, the year before, Chris O'Rourke was the best surfer in California. And he stunned the world with his success in Australia on the Australian leg of the brand new World Surf Tour. But he came home and his girlfriend found a lump in his neck. And he had Hodgkin's disease. And I went from being number two to number one. And I went from, I went from being the California kid from Tamarack to being the California kid for the world, living my dream, making the top 16 in the world, on the cover of the surf magazines, all those things. During that same four-year stretch, Chris O'Rourke was fighting for his life against Hodgkin's disease. Time after time, chemotherapy, paddling out at wind and sea, being rejoicing to be able to stand up on a wave. And before he stepped into eternity, God gave me a divine appointment with him on a flight to Australia. It was not my, I didn't even know that he was on the flight. And when I checked in at LAX, some other pro surfers were there, and he was going to Australia as an honorary judge for a contest. And he looked like death, skin and bones. Skin and bones. And by the decree of the Lord, God had me sitting next to him on a full 747 without any intention or pre-deliberate action. And for 17 hours, Chris O'Rourke, who loved Jesus, was very involved with the vineyard in La Jolla at that time. He peeled me like an onion in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he preached Christ to me. And he even made me put lotion on his dead skin. He took his shirt off, and I put lotion on his dead skin. And it was like elephant skin. I'll never forget it. God made me touch death, but not just anyone's death, my hero's death. And everyone thought he was in remission, but he told me in confidence on that flight that he was dying and the cancer was over his entire body. He put that on me. And he said, I'm ready to be with Jesus, but you're not. You think you're all that because you're the California kid. I know you, Joy Brandt. He was ready, I wasn't. And the amazing thing, he collapsed a couple days later on the scaffolding at Burley Heads during the Stubbies Pro. Same event, I lost to Shane Horan in the second round. He flew home on a light, like a life flight thing, and he died three weeks later in California. God gave me a divine appointment with a dying man. Not just any dying man, my hero and my rival, Chris O'Rourke. 
I cried so hard writing this story in the book and even editing it, I, I just come to tears. Because God only gave him 21 years and he's given me 61. I got 20 more, 40 more than he did. And I asked myself, have I lived them well? Because Chris didn't have the extra 40 I got. Have I lived my 40 years? When he shared Christ with me, have I received well what was intended by the Lord? And have I, had, do you know someone that was young that you loved and were close to and they died? And now you've lived into your 60s? I got the 40 years. He's like the guy that died in combat and I survived the battle and the war. And I've really asked myself, have I lived it well? Well, time will tell, but I definitely intend to live it better than I ever have before. Even as I'm sure you do. Time is so precious. Time is so valuable. It's the greatest gift we have today. Use it wisely for Jesus. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our church YouTube channel. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. For more information about Pastor Joey personally, you can follow him on his Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and God bless.